You're listening to an audio sermon from Redemption Church in Olds, Alberta. It is our prayer that through this ministry, we will see lost people saved, saved people matured, and mature people multiplied all to the glory of God. For more information about our church, or to let us know how we can be praying for you, visit us online at www.redemptionolds.com or send us an email at info at redemptionolds.com. Normally, at this point, we dismiss the kids, uh, and once a month, we say, kids, stick around. We love you. We want you here. Um, that's on purpose. Um, you guys are part of the church. You guys are part of our fellowship, part of our body, and so it's great. We love our children's ministry teachers, and that they can be teaching you God's word in, in smaller classes and interacting with you, and, and every now and then, we just want to bring you all in, and we want to have family worship time. We want to look into God's word together. Um, So kids, look at me for a second. This is for you. This is for you. God's word is for you. And and so we want you to be able to listen and pay attention this morning. So um, that's why we have these fill-ins. If anyone didn't get a fill-in, kids for sure. I know some of the grown-ups like them. I I know it sure helps me organize my sermon better. So I assume it would help you figure out what on earth I'm doing with my organization. If you don't have a fill-in, put up your hand, and, uh, and one of our ushers will get you one. Um, oh, one up here. Um, and and uh, if you're too young to write and fill that in, draw me a picture. Draw me a picture of something out of the sermon, anything. just can't be a picture of me. It's got to be a picture of something out of the sermon. And uh, I did bring candy this time, and so I will be excited to meet you at the back afterwards. You can show me your fill-in, and, uh, and I will give you some chocolate. And uh, I, think that's a, I think that's a pretty good deal. So let's, uh, let's go to God's Word. We're in Genesis chapter 2, and uh, open your Bible up there. If you don't have a Bible with you, um, that's even more important than a fill-in. Um, we want you to have God's Word open in your lap. Our goal is just to, to say what God has already said and, and nothing more, nothing less. And so if you don't have a Bible, you can put up your hand as well, and one of our ushers will give you a Bible, and uh, we would love for you, uh, if you need that, to just keep it, take it home with you. Um, and so, um, yeah, open up Genesis chapter 2. I want to say thank you before we get started to uh, Brian. Uh, I was away last week at a GCC conference, um, just rubbing shoulders with some of our other churches and pastors and being encouraged, and, uh, and he was uh, willing to fill in and, and preach, and I'm so thankful for that. I haven't had a chance to listen to it yet, but I will, um, but so uh, grateful to have guys that are willing to step in and do that. This morning, uh, as we come to Genesis 2, um, we come to a pivotal moment in the book of Genesis, uh, a pivotal moment in the Bible, uh, a pivotal moment in the history of our world. Like, this is a big deal. Kids, I'm glad you're with us this Sunday, because this is important. This is huge right here. Um, If you want to understand the way our world works, the, way, the reason our world is the way it is, this is it. Right here, we're going to get into it. We're going to see it. Um, and uh, it's strange. It's really strange. When you think about it, um, human history hangs in the balance. Our world is forever changed because a tale of two trees. Two trees in a garden. Um, is the hinge point in one sense, one of the hinge points uh, of our world. 
Genesis chapter 2. We're going to look at verses 4 to 17. Um, and, uh, and we'll see these, these two trees, and then we'll unpack um, what the Lord is saying here. So follow along with me, starting in verse 4 of chapter 2. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created. In the day the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. When no bush of the field was yet in the land and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had yet not caused it to rain on the land and there was no man to work the ground, and a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. When the Lord God formed the man of the dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, And there he put the man whom he had formed, and out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first was the Pishon, and it is... It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Hevelah, where there is gold. And the gold in that land is good. Bedellium and onyx stone are there. And the name of the second river is the Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and he put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day you eat of it, you will surely die. Would you pray with me? Father, this world is a broken place. A place of pain and suffering of lack and need, of hunger and death. We see so clearly as we come to your word this morning, that's not the world you created. That's not where we started. Help us this morning, God, as we look into your word, to understand your truth, to see this world clearly as we should, to understand you a little bit more, to see your goodness and your kindness and your mercy and your grace. Lord, I pray that you would be at work in me and through me. God, that my words would be faithful to your word. God, if there's anything I have uh, prepared to say that that would not be true to your word, that those words would just fall to the ground, um, that they would not be heard, but God, that, that your word would go forth. God, that you would, as you promised, build your church. Do it this morning. Do it in our hearts. Even now, we come to your word trembling before it and trusting in you, looking to you for for good things, for your work in our hearts, in our lives. God, be at work now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So, a story, no doubt, we've all heard. We're familiar with these verses. Um, And before we get to these two trees, before we get to understanding our world as it is today, um, we need to first understand um, verses 4 to 14 and and what was there originally. 
what was there that, that God created. And, and what we see is a perfect paradise, a perfect paradise. Now, verse 4 opens up uh, a new section in the book of Genesis. And, and so um, that, those words there, um, these are the generations, that's significant. The word generations there is toledote. You don't need to know that, but I think it's neat. And, and if you're reading commentaries and stuff, they're going to talk about that. Um, toledote just means um, the offspring or the generation of. But um, Moses is using it kind of metaphorically. Um, he, he, he's using it to mean basically this is the story of. This is the account of. And, and these are like Moses' chapter headings. And so we have our own little headings and numbers to help us find things. Um, but this is how Moses split the book up when he wrote it. And, and you'll see this phrase, these are the generations of, you'll see it ten times through the book of Genesis. Um, and uh, the next one is uh, chapter 5. These are the generations of Adam. And he goes to tell the story of Adam. And then these are the generations of Noah. And he tells the story of Noah. And then these are the generations of the sons of Noah. And on and on it goes. Um, you can go this afternoon and dig through your Bible and look for them. Uh, don't do it now. Stay with me. Um, let's not get ahead of ourselves. Um, but this right here is the first. Um, these are the generations. And it's a little bit odd because it's not a person. Um, this time it's the heavens and the earth. This is the story of our world, or this is the, the account, these are the generations of the heavens and the earth. So Genesis chapter 1 uh, is like maybe a big introduction, a preface. Um, it, it's the six days that God created the, the heavens and the earth, and it's kind of the big cosmic view, right? It's the mighty God speaking the world into existence. And then when we come to chapter 2, verse 4, it's like he starts over again. He goes back again to the beginning, um, but this time with a little more detail. This time he zooms in because he's telling a specific story. I don't know if you felt it, but the first time I read these verses, uh, verses 5 and 6, seem really out of place. Right? It doesn't really make sense. What do you mean there's no bushes and no trees? I thought he just filled the earth with bushes and trees, didn't he? Well, no, he's, he's rewinding. It's, it's flashback time. Um, and he's going back, and, he, and, and he's going a little bit closer. Um, he's resetting the stage. And so that, that phrase of, hey, there's no bushes or trees yet, the world's not done being created yet. Back in the day, before the world was finished, this is what happened. And he's telling this specific part of the story, and, and what he focuses in on is the creation of, of man. Verse 7, the Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground. Chapter 1, we, we heard about the creation of man already, but very high level, right? God made man in his own image. Here he gets into detail. How did it happen? What did that look like? And it's in these details that we begin to see this, this perfect paradise that God is building. Firstly, we see this perfect paradise. We see it in the perfect presence of God. The perfect presence of God. For all the rest of creation, um, through chapter 1, God just declares and it happens, right? Let there be and there was. Trees, fish, birds, animals, all of it, let there be and there was. Now, for humanity, something radically different happens. Something more detailed. God actually stooped down and he gathers up some dirt or some clay. How many kids like to play with Play-Doh? Yeah, God does too. Um, he, he's got this Play-Doh, this earth. He's, he's, it's more than that. He's, he's making mud pies. And he, and he smooshes together some dirt, and he makes 
the man. And then and he shapes him. And, 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 and there's something personal here. There's something intimate here that doesn't happen with anything else. And actually, you might have noticed it already, um, the introduction to this section. Um, remember chapter 1? We talked about how, how Moses uses the word Elohim. Um, Elohim is the Hebrew word that just means God. And it can be used of other gods or the true God. It's just the generic word for, for God, the, the mighty one. But Moses moves into this next section, and for the first time, he uses the name of God. Not just a, a general word for God, but, but now the, the personal name for God. So look at verse 7. Then the Lord God created man. Kids, when you see that word, uh, L-O-R-D, all capital letters in your Bible, um, you have to do a little bit of translating on the fly. I wish you didn't. I wish they translated this better. Um, but all capital letters, Lord, um, what's behind there is Yahweh. It's the name of God, right? It's God's personal name, the name that he gave to Moses at the burning bush. I am that I am. Um, and and this, this combination, Lord, God, Yahweh, Elohim, um, it's used a whole bunch of times right here from now up until uh, kind of mid-chapter 4, uh, and then once more in the whole rest of the first five books of the Bible and rarely through Scripture. It's, it's, it's rarely used. He's making a point here. The mighty, sovereign creator God, Elohim, who created the heavens and the earth in six days, the mighty God is also the personal God. He's loving. He's intimate. He's the, the covenant God, the God that has relationship with his people. That's the God that shows up here. So God's title is powerful, but God's name is personal. And we get those both together. And then it says that the Lord God formed the man. Here he is playing in the mud, squeezing together. But the word there, it'd be easy to kind of breeze past that, but it's a specific word. Uh, it's a word of kind of a work of art. It's his masterpiece. He's forming and, and shaping carefully and intently. Um, like a, a potter would, would sh shape a precious vase out of a lump of clay. Right? He's communicating that, that humanity is God's work of art. There's something special here. It's God's work of art. And in this intimate creation in a unique way. And then on top of that, once the man has been formed out of the dirt, God draws near and he breathes into the nostrils of the, his little shaped, formed man. And he gives it the breath of life. And the man that he formed out of the dirt becomes a living being. This is so personal. This is so intimate. Guys, this is like Prince Charming waking up Sleeping Beauty with a kiss, right? Like, that's what we're talking about. He brings this clay to life and he loves it he's shaped it he's formed it he's given it life in this way it's this perfect relationship adam has intimacy with god closeness god created adam as this act of love he crafted him and shaped him perfectly and and personally breathed life into him god god delights in in all of his creation right End of day six, he steps back, he looks at all these made, and he said, behold, it's all very good, but there's something special about humanity. 
This is his work of art. This is his masterpiece. That's how God feels about people, right? Let that sink in. Do you ever wonder about that? Ever wonder about your own value and worth, right? You ever feel like maybe you just don't belong? I do. I think maybe sometimes people get the idea that because I stand up and preach that I have this great confidence inside of me that I'm like socially invisible. Uh Uh-uh, not (laughs) invisible maybe, not invincible. Um, I I feel that. I feel like that, that I think all of us do. Right? We have those moments of standing in a room full of people and you feel totally unlo- alone. Like, does anyone even know I'm here? Who should I go talk to? Does anyone even want to talk to me? Um, I'm the odd one out. And, and you just kind of want to crawl inside yourself and disappear. I, I don't think I'm alone in that. I think we all feel that. Relationally, um, we all want two things, right? We want to be deeply known and fully loved. Right? Deeply known and fully loved. It's not enough to be fully loved if we're not deeply known because we know that's not true love, right? I mean, they say they love me, but if they only knew me, if they really knew this about me, then they wouldn't. And so we have this sense of being an imposter, of not being actually loved. I'm a a fraud. Obviously, even worse is to be deeply known and not truly loved. They do know who I am and they don't like it. No, we we have this, this need. Um. The combination of both of those is intimacy, right? To be, to be deeply known and fully loved, that's to have intimacy with someone. That's a, that's a true relationship. That's what our hearts long for. And the opposite of intimacy is insecurity. I don't belong. I don't know if they like me, love me, know me. And we all have that at different times. We all, we all face that, um, that pressure and, and that that. that out-of-placeness, that lack of belonging. You know who didn't face that? Adam. He didn't feel that. In the garden, Adam was deeply known, completely known, and fully loved by God. And God was right there to show it, right? He was walking with God in the garden. Adam had belonging. He had intimacy. He had this personal relationship, this closeness to God and a sense of absolute belonging in the, in the perfect presence of God. That's the foundation for this paradise that Adam is in. It's the perfect presence of God with him. Secondly then, on top of that, this perfect paradise uh, has a perfect provision of God. God provides completely. We see this in verses 8 to 14. Verse, verse 8 says, The Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. God planted a garden. Now, just geographically, um, Eden was a region, an area, and the garden is in Eden. The idea of a garden is a place that's enclosed. It's protected. It's, it's distinct. Um, and it's a place of safety and a place of enjoyment. Verse 9 tells us that out from the ground, God brought every tree. Look at this. Every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. Now that would include the, the tree of life and the tree of the, the knowledge of good and evil. We'll, we'll come back to those in a minute. Let's just park that for a second. But think about this. Every tree that is good for food. Kids, what are your favorite fruits? What are some of the best fruits? Come on, give me some. 
pineapple. Somebody else. Not on pizza, though. That's weird. Somebody else. What's your favorite fruit? Yeah. Apples. Oranges. Shout them out. A couple more. Papaya. Dried papaya on a hiking trip. Best thing ever. Okay. Apricots. Okay. There's all kinds of crazy fruit out there. Like, just I tried to Google different kinds of fruit. There's, there's tons of them. They're all over the place. And Adam is surrounded by every tree that bears good fruit. Mangoes, papayas, pears, pineapples, apples. It's all there. God provided Adam with an abundance of food. Abundance. Not, not just what he needed to survive, right? He could have just given him just enough to get by. No, he, he goes over the top. Endless variety of flavors and textures. Just imagine how long it would have taken Adam even just to try all of them. And then one day he's like, what? Strawberries, these are amazing. Blueberries, like he's just continually discovering. It's God's goodness. It's God providing abundantly. Every tree that was good for food, but also every tree that was pleasant to the sight. God also provided Adam with an abundance of beauty. I mean, this is over the top. He didn't need to do that. Every beautiful flower, every beautiful leaf and fern. We were just often in Ontario in the fall and the, the reds and the purples and yellows and all the colors. Um, it's, it's beautiful. Our world is gorgeous. And God put every beautiful tree there in the garden for Adam to enjoy. Surround him. The abundance of food, abundance of beauty. And then verse... Uh, 10 to 14 tells us um, this, this all-inclusive resort that he's at with all of these amazing things, uh, it's not oceanfront, it's riverfront, right? The Garden of Eden is riverfront property. There was one river flowing out of Eden, and at the garden it divides into four rivers, and, and so it's flowing all over the land. And, and the four rivers are named the Pishon, the Gihon, the Tigris, and the Euphrates, um, two of those names we still use for rivers today in the Middle East, and people try to work from that and try to nail down, okay, so where is the Garden of Eden? I, we can find it, right? Um, the problem is, the, the more you look, the more none of it makes any sense at all. Trust me, I tried. I tried. Um, and the people that say they know, they have some secret knowledge, they're the ones that figured it out, and we know where the Garden of Eden would have been, they don't. They don't have some new insight. What they're doing is cherry-picking a few details that look really good together and just conveniently ignoring everything else. Uh, and they can make a really good-sounding argument until you read the next guy, and then you go, oh, it can't be both. Um, it doesn't make sense. Um, and the, the biggest piece of, of uh, conveniently ignored details is the flood. I mean, there was a world-covering, earth-shaking flood. It absolutely changed the topography, um, not just of that area, but of the whole world. And so even the Tigris and the Euphrates River, we still have those there today. And, and actually, the first time, if you just kind of Google the Tigris and the Euphrates, you'll see they do, um, they meet up in the east, and you're like, that must be it, where they, where they meet. The problem is, um, Genesis says that the river flows out of the east to the west. The Tigris and the Euphrates flow from the west into the east, and they come together in the east. So it, it, it doesn't make sense. It doesn't fit. Um, 
More likely, as often happens throughout history, is, uh, is they reused some names. These were names of rivers we had before. Let's name these rivers afterwards. I remember Grandpa Noah talking about the Euphrates and the Tigris. Let's name this the Euphrates and that one the Tigris. And, you know, same way we have New York and New Hampshire and New Jersey. Um, we're not all that creative sometimes. And so these details don't tell us where the garden was. Why are they here? Well, for one... It makes it very clear this was a real place. Right? The Garden of Eden was a real, literal, physical place. Um, it's not a made-up story. This is not a metaphor. Um, this, is, this, is, uh, this is not some kind of myth or, or parable. Um, you don't give geographical information um, for, a, for a parable, for a, a mythical story. This place was real. But more importantly, it, it tells us about the Lord's provision. It tells us about the Lord's provision. From, from fruit trees to flowering trees to animals and people, they all need one thing. What do they need, kids? What do they need? Shout it out. Water. We've got to have water. They're in the Middle East. Um, the, the, the one river that people are trying to find, the Pishon, it flows around the land of Havilah. Well, Havilah just means the land of sand. <laughs> doesn't really narrow it down out there. Um, that's what they got. And, and the, the seas are salty and the rains are sparse. River is so significant. God provided an abundance of water. It was life. Think of Psalm 1. It speaks of the tree planted by streams of water that bears fruit in season. That's the picture here. This garden isn't just planted by a river flowing through with life, giving water, but out from this garden flows four rivers off to the rest of the world, um, God's provision in this perfect paradise. It's rich and full and abundant. It's overflowing. Adam had the perfect presence of God. He had, he had intimacy with God, deeply known, fully loved. He had the perfect provision from God. Not just the essentials, but a variety of, of food and, and abundance of beauty and, and life-giving water flowing through all the time. And, and, and this is God's goodness toward his creation, toward mankind. And it begs the question, what happened? What happened? If this is what God first created, if this was his provision for us, where'd it go? Why don't we live in this world now? Anyone else want to go back there? I would love, like, no jobs, no going to work. We're just tending the garden, picking fruit, hanging out. It's beautiful. Go to bed every evening, wake up every morning with the unshakable knowledge that we are deeply known and fully loved by God himself. Close, intimate with him. Abundance of food surrounded by beauty. Why is our world overrun by death if we're created for life? It's tragic. It's, it's heartbreaking. Our world today has kind of small glimpses of that perfect paradise. There's, there's remnants left. But overwhelmingly, it is ruled by and filled by the exact opposite. And the reason for that brings us to these two trees. Let's point to these two trees. They showed up in verse 9. God put them in the middle of the garden. 
And then verses 15 to 17 um, pick up on those trees. You read starting in verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, You may surely eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. So Adam is placed in the garden, this perfect paradise, and, he, and he's given responsibility. First, he's given a job to do. Keep the garden, work it, keep it, tend it, care for it. Then he's given a command. And he's told that, that he can eat from, from every tree in the garden, and that would include the tree of life. So there's a positive command, go and eat, enjoy the garden, and then a negative command, but of this one tree, the knowledge, uh, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, he was not to eat. That was forbidden. It's the only thing. The whole garden, he has full provision of all of his wants and, 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 and needs and everything's covered. And, and this one tree, just don't eat from that tree. And then he's given a consequence. So he's given responsibility, a command, and then a consequence. If he eats from that tree, he will surely die. So these two trees. First is the tree of life. If Adam obeys, if Adam is content with all of God's good and beautiful, wonderful gifts, then he gets life. If he's willing to live under the command of the Lord, he's to, he's to eat from every tree in the garden. That every tree would absolutely include the tree of life. The scripture doesn't give us all the details. We'd love to know, like, do you eat it once and get eternal? Do you have to keep eating? What is that? We don't know. We're not told, which usually means it's not that important. But he would continue to live with God in the garden indefinitely. He would have perfect paradise forever. Forever. It would, he would continue in perfect intimacy Perfect provision of food, surrounded by beauty, surrounded by life. He would have everything he ever needed with no end, so long as he just obeyed God. The other tree is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. There was one thing Adam was not to do. All the things he could do, one thing that he was not to do. And if Adam did not obey if he was not content to, to live under God's protection and God's direction, then the whole thing would fall apart. In the day that he ate of it, he would surely die. Now that would include physical death. Um, that moment that he ate from it, he would be on a path toward death. It would surely come. And he would begin on that inevitable road toward death physical death. But more than that, in the day that he ate of that fruit, um, he would enter into a world of death. Death to his perfect relationship with God, death to his, his perfect paradise and, and provision. Everything would just come crashing down. It's tempting for us to focus on the trees themselves. Was the fruit poisoned or what did that? It wasn't about the trees. It was about obedience to God. It was about obedience. It was about him submitting himself to the Lord, being content to live under God's direction. 
Would Adam obey God and have life, believe God, trust in God's goodness? Or would he disobey God and have death? And this right here is the foundation. This is the groundwork. This is, this is the, the crux, the crucial moment. This right here is the most basic principle of our existence. Let me just walk us through this. There's a God who created the world. Right? And he formed us out of the dust as his precious, beloved masterpiece. He breathed his life into us. He loves us. He wants every good thing for us. That's God's heart toward you, toward us. We feel that in your soul. Listen, God's desire is to make you supremely happy. I don't think Christians are always comfortable with that. It's true, and we'll unpack a little more about that in a minute. But God's desire is to make you supremely happy. That's a good thing. Do you see God that way? That, that maximum joy, though, that supreme happiness, um, that, that total fulfillment can only be found in one place. Sure, in the garden we saw fruit trees and flowering trees and abundant rivers, but all of those things are secondary, right? They all come from one place. They were all blessings from God. God is not only the source of every blessing, he himself is the greatest of all blessings. It's him. God is. And so he wants us to be absolutely happy, and the only place that is going to happen is in and from him. He is the ultimate good thing. And he longs to to give himself to his created people so that in him we would be supremely happy. And in our being happy and satisfied and joyful in him, what does God get? That's a weird question, right? What can you actually give to God? Nothing. He has everything. There's one thing you can give to God, and that is glory. Right? Worship. He's seen, he's he's put on display to be what he truly is. The greatest, most excellent, good, and glorious God. His goodness shines out. So we need to wrap our minds around that. Let that be one of the, the anchors of our understanding of this world, that God desires to bless you with his very self. God wants to be glorified in your joy. And so then, it should come as no surprise that the only command given to Adam, the one law that that he is given from the beginning of creation is don't walk away from me. Don't go somewhere else. Don't turn your back on God. Don't try to to throw me off as your God and find your joy and your satisfaction and and your fulfillment in opposition to me. For one, it won't work. You won't find joy there. You won't find satisfaction in disobedience to God. (coughs) Excuse me. That way only lies death and pain and sorrow. And that's just simple logic. God is the source of every good thing. If you abandon him, 
you abandon every good thing. The, the little glimpses of joy you get along the way are still just gracious gifts from him. But if you abandon him, you abandon every good thing. So firstly, it just won't work. But secondly, you're going to find yourself as the enemy of God. You would be in competition against God, right? Because what do we do when we sin? When we disobey God? To sin is to undermine God's glory. We try to find joy in something else, something that he has forbidden. In our actions, we say, God doesn't satisfy me. I'm going to look for it somewhere else. God is not good and glorious. Something else must be, and we go hunting elsewhere. And that's working against God. That's undermining and attacking and trying to do the opposite of God's purpose in creation. God's goal is that his glory would be put on display. And disobedience to him is to spit on his glory. And to say, no, something else is probably better. I'm going to go find it. But listen, God doesn't fail. His glory will be put on display. And so, for those who love him, who walk in perfect obedience to him, who come to him for life and joy, he will be glorified. How? In their absolute, overflowing, endless joy. But for those who turn away from him, those who reject him to try to, to seek their joy and their satisfaction somewhere else, he will still be glorified. He will be glorified in their absolute and unending misery, right? Their death and absolute lack of joy without God becomes a statement of the glory of God. Seek him, you have joy. Abandon him, you have death. And his glory is put on display either way. So these are the parameters. These are the rules of the universe. Boiled right down to this tale of two trees. The tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Honor the Lord and have life or turn from him and have death. Honor the Lord and have life or turn from him and have death. That's, that's it. That's right at the crux. We talk about the laws of nature, right? The law of gravity, you ever try to break the law of gravity? Good luck with that. The law of cause and effect, the law of the conservation. And we have all these scientific laws that, that help us understand how our world works. This one trumps them all. This one is number one. This is the ultimate law of the universe. Honor the Lord and have life. Turn from him and have death. Now here's the bad news. How's that going for you? How you doing? Have you kept this most basic law? Does this define your life? Have your heart and life been, been just perfectly and completely conformed to, to seeking after and finding your, your joy and your satisfaction and fulfillment and pleasure in, in God and God alone? Only ever enjoying things that he provides and nothing that he forbids? Is your life fully, completely defined by fulfilling God's law perfectly from the heart, never once stepping to the right or the left? If you're having trouble answering that, let me help you. No, no, that's not your life. 
That's none of us. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We're born into it. We live it out. We are distracted and tempted and we run after things of this world, things that God has forbidden, things that only hold death and we, and we run into them hoping for joy in life. Every one of us in thought, in word, and in deed have, have turned away from the goodness of God. We've tried to find our own joy in disobedience to him. And so, essentially, every one of us has has eaten from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. We said, I'll try over here. We have all disobeyed God. We all deserve death. The reason this world is so broken, so full of pain and ugliness and suffering and death, the reason our world today looks so different from the the perfect paradise is our sin. It's our sin. Guess what? It proclaims the glory of God. As it says, look what happens when you abandon God. Look how painful and broken this is because you've left the glorious God. And that sinful, broken, ugly world that we live in today brings us to the third tree. The third tree. There's another one. We have to ask, again, Did God fail? Because let's be honest, it kind of looks like God failed. right? If if God created this world as a display of his glory, that, that through people living in joyful obedience to him, and here we are some 6,000 years later, next month we're going to hit 8 billion people, they say, And exactly 0% of those people, not just the people on earth now, but who have ever lived, none of them have fulfilled this calling. Not you, not me, not anyone who's ever lived. None of us have lived their, their life in perfect pursuit of the goodness and the glory of God. And so if that was God's plan... He didn't just miss it by a little bit. It's not just a little off. It is an absolute catastrophe. It's a failure, a disaster. Is that what happened? Is is that the world that we're living in, this this failure of God? No. Now, what do we know about God? Let's just go back. Who is this God? Let's start with Isaiah 46, 9 and 10. Remember the former things of old. For I am God and there is no other. I am God, there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand. I will accomplish all my purposes. All of them. Everything God does, he does on purpose. And everything God does produces exactly what he intended. It's the only possible logical conclusion. He is all-knowing and all-wise and all-powerful. He can't make an accident. God does not fail. He absolutely accomplishes every one of his purposes. So what does that tell us about these two trees then? What does that tell us about this world that we find ourselves in? We've got to do something with that. A lot of people speculate Why did God even put the tree there in the first place? What was he thinking? Didn't he know? Yeah, 
He knew. It wasn't a surprise. His purposes come to pass. He accomplishes what he sets out to do. Why did he even give Adam an opportunity to sin? A modern North American answer that you'll hear nine times out of ten usually goes something along these lines. That was the cost of human free will. That God needed people to to truly, freely love him, for people to freely love God, there had to be a choice. And so that was the risk that God was willing to take. He was the price he was willing to pay. I think there's some problems with that. I don't think that matches the God of the Bible. Number one, God doesn't need anything. He doesn't need to be loved. He doesn't need us to freely choose him. He has no need. He already had absolute, perfect, fulfilling relationship within the Trinity for eternity past. We don't come offering him something that he needed. And if sin and death in this world, the way it is, is the cost of my free will, no thanks. Not worth it. I don't want it. That's not a good gift. Besides that, isn't God fully loved and worshipped and glorified in heaven? Because in heaven there's no sin. In heaven there's no choice to sin. There's no opportunity to sin. There's no tree of the knowledge of good and evil in heaven. There's perfect conformity to his will for eternity, and in that he is absolutely glorified. Why not do that on earth? Why not have just started creation in heaven, in that context? Could have created a world in which there was no sin, in which Adam and Eve never chose to eat from the tree. He could have done it, but he didn't. The God who always accomplishes exactly what he sets out to do. The God whose ultimate goal is to put his maximum glory on display created a world where sin would absolutely exist. That's uncomfortable. That takes some wrestling with. The only conclusion, though, is that a world with sinful humans is a world where God's glory is most fully put on display. This was plan A. And that makes us uncomfortable because guess what? You're not the pinnacle of God's plan. He didn't create a world most for your comfort, but most for his glory. Romans 11.32 says, For God has consigned all to disobedience that, so that, he may have mercy on them all. That might be hard for us to understand. That's hard for us to to come to terms with, but that's what Scripture teaches. And Paul gets that. He gets that this isn't easy. He goes on in the next verse to say this, Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom of the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. How inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Who understands the way God works? Who's going to stand up and tell God, no, you, you should have done it this way or you should have done it that way? No, it's all about God and his glory. May he be glorified forever. 
You see, some of God's goodness is put on display, or some of God's glory is put on display in his goodness in that perfect paradise. Adam and Eve enjoying every good thing at the hand of God. Some of God's glory, another, another turn of the, the diamond, another facet of the jewel is seen in his justice. When he punishes those who reject him, when he passes the sentence of eternal death on those who turn their backs on him, that's also his glory on display. And some of his glory, and I would argue the most vivid and brilliant display of God's glory, is seen when he takes those rebellious sinners who rejected the him, and by his mercy and his grace, he rescues them. Even though they absolutely did not deserve it, even though they turned their back on him and deserve death and hell, he pulls them out and he gives them mercy and grace. God's plan was a plan to show his mercy. You don't have mercy without sin. You don't have grace without judgment. You see, when God created those two trees in the garden, he already had a third tree in mind. Revelation 13.8 speaks of the names of people written from, from before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. Like the, the, the chronology doesn't work out. He hasn't even created yet, and he already has the book of the Lamb who was slain. He's got a plan. This was no surprise. This is plan A. Ephesians 1.4 says, even as he chose us in him, in Jesus, before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. Why would we need to be holy and blameless in his sight, in Jesus, before the foundation of the world? Because God had a plan, and he's working it out. Long before God created the world, he had the cross in mind. The cross wasn't God's duct tape to, to try to patch up and, and rescue this broken plan that was falling apart and try to save some remnants of his glory. Man's sin was always part of God's plan, not just to show his goodness, but also to show his justice and to show his mercy and to show his grace. The glory of God's character is most fully on display in the cross of Jesus Christ. I think as Martin Lloyd-Jones says, there at the cross, justice and mercy kiss. We read through Genesis now, having seen God's story play out, and it becomes clear. Both the, the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they're both pointing us forward. They're looking ahead to another future tree, Jesus Christ. God himself came down to earth. He did live the perfect life. I know a bunch of you were squirming. I said, nobody lived the perfect life. And you were like, yeah, Jesus did. Jesus did. Always only living for the, for the glory of God in perfect obedience to him. And, and, and of all the ways that Jesus could have died, there were all kinds of different gruesome uh, ways that he could have been executed. It's no coincidence that he's hung on a cross, a tree. 
The tree of the knowledge of good and evil became a curse to us, right? We ate from it and we took on the curse of God, the curse of death and and hell. Listen to what Galatians 3.13 says. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it's written, and here he quotes from Deuteronomy, it's written, cursed is everyone who's hanged on a tree. God already set this up. The one that's hung on a tree, that's the one who will receive my curse. And there's Jesus, in Paul's words, hung on a tree. Christ, hanging on the cross, took the curse of of sin and death and hell. He paid the penalty. He paid the price. It's the curse poured out. But the cross is more than just the curse poured out. It's more than just the penalty paid. It's also the tree of life. Obviously, not the cross itself. That was just a piece of wood. It's thrown away and burned somewhere. But what Jesus did there. John 10.10, Jesus says, The thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. I come that they may have life and have it abundantly. Sound familiar? The, the, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the one who lies and says, did God really say, come, try, eat, this will be great, this will be fun, there'll be joy here. He comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. The tree of life is there that we may have joy, have life, and have it abundantly. Jesus' death on the cross, taking the, the penalty that we deserve, became the way back to the tree of life, the way back to abundant life, eternal life, to the garden. The cross is the way to that perfect paradise. That's it. The cross is the way back. In the garden, Adam had perfect intimacy with God, right? Intimacy that was destroyed by sin, sin that makes us enemies of God. Romans 5.10 says, for if while we were enemies... We were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Much more now that we are reconciled, we will be saved by his life. Jesus died to reconcile us to God, to restore us to a relationship with him that was broken. In the garden, Adam had every good thing provided for him by the hand of God. In the cross, God provides for our greatest need, forgiveness rescue out of sin and death. In the garden, Adam had the the life-giving river flowing through. John 4, 14, Jesus says, but whoever drinks of the water that I give him will never be thirsty again. The water I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The cross is the way back to that perfect paradise. Because on the cross, Jesus is beginning a new creation. A new creation. It's the very beginning of a new heavens and a new earth. It starts with with Jesus himself as this new Adam, this new head, this new beginning of the human race, and then flowing through him to all those who were born again into that new humanity. We have it right now. We have glimpses of it. We have the, the early signs of it. This new creation, um, it's, it's begun in some sense, but we won't have it fully until God's plan comes to a completion. 
when Christ returns. When this broken, corrupted world comes to an end, what does the book of Revelation tell us we find? What do we see then? Well, Isaiah tells us that there will be the richest foods and well-aged wines, a feast set before us, God providing every good thing. Revelation 22, 1-2, listen to this. Then the angel showed me the river, the river of the water of life, bright as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. It's the river of life flowing through. Also, on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month, the leaves of the tree for the healing of the nations. So the river of life flows out from the the throne of God, and there, spanning over the river, maybe its roots going down on either side, the river flowing through is the tree of life. Now, I don't know if it's literally there, There's literally a a river and the the tree of life in heaven. That's not the point. The point is the abundance of the goodness of God, the restoration of, of provision and of life that flows out from him. And most importantly, above all of that, Revelation 21, 3, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. And he will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. Restored relationship with him. We have it now just a little bit. We have reconciliation, but, but not fully. We were not with him like we one day will be in his presence. Once again, we will dwell with God. We will not only have his perfect provision, but his perfect presence with us. We will see him as he is. And in him, once again, we will be deeply known and fully loved. It's the Garden of Eden restored. And there will be, for an eternity, for an eternity fulfilling God's glorious plan, there it is. In a world of endless joy, finding our delight and our, and our satisfaction and, and wonder overflowing from the radiance of the glory of God. A glory and a joy that is magnified a million times over because the only way to enjoy it is because of the marvelous mercy of God. And so the, the cross of Christ, the Lamb who was slain, take center stage into eternity as the the mercy and the grace of God shines forth. Do you know that mercy? In some sense, that, that tale of two trees still stands before us today. Which will you choose? Will you continue to eat from the, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil every time you feel temptation to sin? That's it. It's Satan saying, has God really said? Is goodness and joy and and satisfaction really found in him? Don't you want to look over here? Don't you want to know? All your friends are doing it. It's going to be great. And it's death. It's death. Do we continue to walk down that road? Do we continue to turn our backs on God and walk in sin, disobeying him, rejecting him, fighting against him? Because that 
life of death will only lead to an eternal death in hell? Or will you come to the tree of life? Will you repent, turn away from your sin, come to the cross and find mercy and grace and forgiveness and new life? Because at the cross, there's, there's life, life abundant, life eternal. Life overflowing in joy and and the wonderful glory of God. And for all those who know that mercy, who have come to the cross and and found forgiveness in life, um, we continue to come, right? We live there. We continue to, to feast at the tree of life. One of the ways we do that is celebrating communion together. Josh, why don't you come and prepare to lead us again? Jesus commanded, we do this frequently. We eat of the bread and drink of the cup. We remember his death in our place, his body broken for us, his mercy and grace towards us. And in the act of eating and drinking, we, we come to a meal at God's table as a symbol of, of fellowship with him, restoration to him because of the cross, that relationship restored. And so... Um, If you're not a believer this morning, if you've never bent your knee before the cross and you've never come in in repentance of sin seeking forgiveness, we just ask that you would let this pass. Just observe this morning and and consider your, your position before the Lord, your sin before a holy God. Similarly, if you consider yourself a believer but but you've been walking down the path of sin. You're continuing to run after your your joy and the things that God has forbidden. Or if there's division between you and someone else in the church that you haven't done all that you can to restore. Again, Paul says that we ought to abstain to examine ourselves. Now again, this is not a time to look back and say, I'm a sinner, I should not eat from the Lord's table. But if you come in repentance, then it's, I'm a sinner, I desperately need the Lord's table. I need grace if we come in repentance before him. And for those who come, not perfect, not by any stretch perfect, but repentant, not sinless, but seeking grace, we come to celebrate. Again, we look backward to the cross where my death was paid, where mercy and grace were poured out for me. We look inward to our own hearts. I continue to need him. I need his power, his strength, his sustaining grace and sanctifying grace to continue to to live in him. And we look forward with confident hope of his return. Great assurance that because of the mercy of God on the cross, we will have a future with him. We will have a, a hope Uh, of, of an eternal paradise in his glory. Kids, I'm so glad you were with us this morning. I want you to grab hold of that one truth, that one rule that runs the universe. If you honor God, there is life. You turn from him, there's death. That's it. That's it. That's what I want you to know. I want you to hang on to that. Church, I hope together, um, we're just more in awe of the mercy of our God and more in, uh, enamored by his beauty, his glory, his mercy. 
um, and that we would continue to seek after him. If you want to pray with somebody, um, Grant and Becky would be here. They would love to pray with you, encourage you any way that, uh, that they can. Maybe it's something out of the sermon. Maybe you, you're wrestling with something. Maybe it's just been a rough week and you just want somebody to pray with you. Um, they would love to do that, um, as would any of us. Um, but know this, Redemption Church, you are loved. Have a great week.